sharing the Word of God. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you've just joined us because you, uh, one of the other classes were canceled, what we've been doing, and uh, we've been looking at 1 Peter 3 as our basis for, uh, for discussion, and that's the passage that talks about that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us the reason of the hope that was in us with meekness and fear. And we made these observations out of that text that there's going to be people who will oppose us. We shouldn't fear their challenges. We should be informed so that we can answer uh, in a wise way. To give an answer is an apologia, to give a defense, not to apologize, but to explain why we believe, why we do what we do. And with that in mind, when we do that, we're supposed to have a spirit of meekness and fear. In other words, we're not to be condescending, rude, critical, um, uh, hyper, uh, you know, tense about the situation, but in self-control, sharing what we believe. And then as well, he talks about in the next verse, having our lives that we're honoring the Lord. So our lips and our, and our life need to be going together. Now with that in mind, here's a passage that many have, uh, have memorized, most all of you had. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and it talks as well about the need to be studying the Word of God. You read it, and I read it in our English, and both the, most of us have it where it says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me just dissect that verse for a little bit. Okay, In context, if you look at the verses before and the verses after, he's talking about how we're to avoid certain things. And he's talking about the false teachings and the different issues that come up. If you, uh, if you look in verse 14 where he talks about the avoiding, he makes that comment of the things that put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words of no profit, but to the subverting of hearers, there is, a, there is an occasion where getting into discussions about religious things can, can be really uh, get off track, off target. It, it, you have people who sometimes when you're sharing the word of God, they change the subject. They try to divert it. Or they come up with other types of things such as prove this, prove this, why do you believe this? And they run into all kinds of areas that sometimes even get a little bit goofy. He warns us in this text. He says that what we're supposed to do is not get into words of no profit. Not to get into these discussions that don't have last benefits that what they typically do when he uses the word that they subvert the hearers, the word that he's using is the word catastrophe. Does that sound like a word you're familiar with? Okay. And so he's talking about that idea that sometimes when you get into some of these debates and things of that sort, that it, it can really disrupt the hearers. Um, I've had the occasion, maybe you have too, that I've been invited to a home to do a Bible study. And when I've gotten there, I found out that they've invited somebody else and they want us to debate. I've had this happen twice where I've invited in a home. And when I got there, I found out that it was somebody of a cult. And the people said, okay, we're going we're gonna to ask you two, both of you, and whoever can explain it the best, that's who we're going to believe. Uh, quite frankly, at that, mo- at that moment, it's like this is going, whoever talks the loudest and has the last word, they, they usually win in those things. And to me, it seems like such a waste of, of casting pearl before the swine at times. And so that's the idea here is of subverting of hearers. But then he talks about, in the next verse, he says, shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto the more ungodliness, and their word will eat as does a canker. The word canker is gangrene. 
And so he talks about that idea that sometimes when we get into conversation, we can run on a rabbit trail, we can, and I'm not talking about not defending truth. I'm talking about peripheral things. I'm talking about things that we, we don't know. We can't be dogmatic on or in, uh, in some of the weird doctrines. And so what he's talking about is that what you and I need to do is instead of getting on, I'll, I'll give you an illustration, this, this one. Do Christians get caught up trying to determine when Jesus is coming back? Yes, no? There are books written about, oh, yeah, and, yeah, and people get so caught up with that type of thing. Or they get caught up with, um, have you ever seen these books that talk about Bible, Bible prophecy unveiled by numbers? Okay, where, where they take numbers of words and there's a secret code inscribed within scripture that if you learn this secret code you'll be able to tell when Jesus comes back the bottom line is no one knows so why should we spend our time working on trying to figure out when he's coming back we're supposed to always be watching because he may come as a thief in the night at any moment and so he says okay instead of getting caught up in those types of things why don't you do this become a diligent worker Become a diligent worker with truth. I'm amazed how zealous people can get about things that the Bible says we cannot know. Well, get, be diligent. The word that he uses when he's talking here, study to show thyself approve, um, I want to make sure you understand. It's not the same word for study as we use it today. When we say study, what does that mean to you? Okay, reading. Whatever. The word that he uses here is Give diligence. That's all it means, is be zealous about. That's the word, the original word for st- that's translated study. In fact, in the 1611 King James, when it was first written, that's what study meant. Today's study is academics and school. It didn't mean that back in the in their, you know, Middle Ages. It had the idea of just be earnest about something. So be je- diligent, be zealous about what? About being approved. Work hard at being approved for what? In what area are we to be really zealous to make sure we get God's approval? He talks about being a workman. Being a workman, being a laborer at what? In what? He goes on, he says, being a laborer in rightly dividing the word of truth. The, the word rightly divide has, uh, comes from several different concepts. Uh, it was used in farming. How, how would a farmer rightly divide? How would you think that would apply? You're out in the field. How, what, what do you, you're plowing. What do you want to do? Straight line. Okay, so you want to rightly divide. You want to you set your mind on some fence post, something, and you head straight towards that to keep a straight line. It was used of engineers laying out a road, that they have to lay it out in a way that it's going to follow the, the scales. It's going to make sure that it works right. It was used of stonecutters cutting precious rocks, that they make sure they cut it without ruining the stone and getting it so that it fits into a spot. It was used of tent makers, who Paul was one, when you are cutting the fabric, those of you who have sewn, do you need to cut straight, follow the, whatever, what do you call it? The pattern, the pattern, whatever. Do you need to cut straight on the pattern, yes or no? Okay, that's what it means about what you're to be, to do, be doing. You are to be rightly dividing, making sure you go along the lines that God wants. You're to be a workman at this. Now, what does that mean when you say, be a good workman at rightly dividing? What does that imply? What does it imply when he says be a workman? It takes effort. 
It takes effort. It's not going to be easy to understand the word of God. It won't work if you say, well, I'm going to come and Wayne's going to tell me all about what I'm supposed to believe. That won't work. Okay, I, I, I can't do it for you. I can help you, but you have got to study the word of God yourself. You have got to make sure you understand what you believe so that you can, you can be one that gives a reasonable answer. So it's going to be a burden on you. I have a burden to teach you, but you have the burden of learning things. So here, let's make some observation. God wants every one of us in this room, every one of us and all of us, to be a workman when it comes to laboring in God's word. Second thought, God wants each of us to be accurate when we are dealing with God's word. Okay, not going by our opinion, but being accurate. I, 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 I shudder when I hear people say they do Bible studies. And I'm glad people do Bible studies. But it always, it, I cringe when people say, in our Bible study, we get together and we go around the room and say, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? The Word of God has application to all people. But you can't just say, okay, every one of us has a different translation or interpretation, and that's okay. God's word is, is got a clear interpretation. Now, application may be different, but the interpretation should be where we're harmonious in interpretation. Not everyone doing their own thing, which is right in their own eyes. Here, we're supposed to be studying the word of God, and it is possible to cut it straight. It is possible for you to understand truth and to interpret it. The Word of God says that it takes diligent work for you to do that. And he's observing. He's going to approve or disapprove how you're handling his Word. So when you think about this, if you and I don't handle the Word of God right, we're going to end up like one of those individuals in a catastrophe spiritually or in a gangrenous situation. So we are required by the word of God to put diligent effort in, in laboring in God's word and not to be pompous, pompous or pride that we've got the truth. By the way, the truth is available to everyone, not just us. And so he's challenging us to be in the word of God. And I'm going to then say, ask this question, do you study the Bible? Do you study its teachings? Do you do more than just read it to get something to carry you through the day, which is good? Do you learn what the Word of God says? And so we've in this class saying, okay, let's study enough that we can give an answer to those who say, is there God? What about the Trinity? What did God do before the creation? What, you know, what is the reality? Can anybody get to heaven by anything they believe? Um, did Jesus really exist? You and I say, hey, that's a, that seems like peripheral. You know, it doesn't seem like people would challenge, but it is worthwhile to just know historically that there are people who will question whether Jesus did exist or not. This is the question that we we landed on last time. And this, this is really an important question that you have got to be able to answer. Do you, why do you believe Jesus is God? Because this is the crux factor of all scripture. That Jesus is God in the flesh. If we take away that doctrine, man, then we don't have salvation. We don't have eternity. We're in a mess. So this is an important doctrine. And if we were to ask you the question, okay, why you believe, let's back up there, why you believe Jesus is God, how would you answer that? Somebody at the cooler at work, at school says, you know, tell me why you believe Jesus is God. What are you going to say? What's that? Good. Anything else? Any other reason you believe he's God? Ron? If you didn't hear Ron, he's resurrected. He's the only one who ever resurrected. Anything else, Lloyd? 
Okay, okay, so, okay, so he was involved in creation. Okay, anything else? Any other thing, reasons why you believe Jesus is God? All of these are accurate, by the way. They're good, they're all good answers. What's that? Okay, that predicted about his life, so he's in control of history, time, events, excellent. Anything else? The miracles that he did. Okay, anything else? Yeah, yeah, he, he repeatedly made, made claim to it. Okay, the reaction to that, Dory, would be, well, lots of people claim. But he backed up his claims. Okay, anything else that you would have? Did any other people declare he was God? Do you remember in scriptures where in the mouth of two or three witnesses things are established? Did anybody else declare besides himself? Peter did. The apostles did several, several times. John the Baptist did. Okay. What's that? Somebody here? The devils did. Okay. His enemies. Somebody over here? The centurion at the cross. Truly, this is the Son of God. God did. We're going to look at that in Hebrews in just a few moments. Okay, so you would say, okay, here's why I believe that Jesus is God. The attributes that he possessed, that he demonstrated, which are attributes of God. The eternality, the, uh, the ability to do such great things, knowing things that are humanly impossible, the sinlessness. We said this as well. He was in activities. Bob, you alluded to this right away. Lloyd, you alluded to this. What he did proved that he was God. He did things that only God could do, create. There's something else that Jesus did that only God can do. The Pharisee said, no man can do this but God. Do you remember what it was? Forgive sins. Forgive sins, okay? That he did it on a couple occasions. He told people directly that their sins were forgiven. He claimed to be deity. Uh, Dory, this goes with what you said. Um, and I want to just put these, this comment up. I did this during uh, one of the sermons on incarnation. But it is amazing the words that Jesus made, the statements that he made that to know him was to know God, to see him was to see God, to believe him was to believe God, to receive him was to receive God, to hate him was to hate God, to honor him was to honor God. He did the works of God. God was in him. He was in God. It is clear that they are one. And so his deity, his claims, just absolutely amazing. Let's take it a step further. Some would respond and say, well, Jesus made claims and they were just, you know, they weren't taken seriously. The leadership, the Jews, took him very seriously. And they said, he's claiming to be equal with God. There was no doubt about that. that that's what Jesus meant. Uh, he displayed the authority of God over what? What did he show authority over sin? Nature. Anything else? Death. Okay. So he showed over the nature, as you said, over people's bodies, that diseases, over death itself, that he had powers, authority that nobody else demonstrated. He was affirmed by other, pro other writings that he is God. Isaiah. Do you remember the Christmas passage that, that Isaiah declares he's God? For unto us, the Son is given unto us, yeah, the child is given, the son is born. His name shall be Wonderful. Okay, so you have the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. No doubt about it. The prophet believed he was going to be God. Or he was going to be, God was coming in the flesh. Um, the Apostle John, 
Okay, uh, uh, it called him God. We already read and studied that passage in the beginning. He talks about the word was with God, the word was God, and so we already dissected that passage on a Sunday morning. Um, let's go a little bit further. In John's writings, he talks about Jesus being the Alpha and Omega, and if you go to Isaiah, Jehovah is called Alpha and Omega. So we're equating the two. Okay, that, uh, that John quoting from Isaiah is saying Jesus is equal with Jehovah. It is uh, James that wrote this. He talks about the Lord of glory. Paul wrote about the Lord of, Lord of glory in Psalm 24. Jehovah is called the Lord of glory. By the way, the reason I'm giving you a couple of these verses is Jehovah Witness say never in the Bible is Jesus called Jehovah. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Okay. If you rightly divide the word of truth. Um, in the New Testament, we're in the book of Hebrews. Let's jump there. In Hebrews 1, there's a couple of verses here that are very important. And again, you know this in your heart that he is God. You understand this. But to be able to give an answer for your belief, you have to make sure you can back it up with Scripture. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 10, the discussion is, starting the book, Jesus is the greatest. And he's going to go on, he says he's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than even the greatest of the prophets who gave the law. Who's he going to talk about? Who's the prophet that gave the law? Moses, okay, and he's going to talk about he's greater than Abraham. That's very important, that discussion that he's writing in the book of Hebrews because he's writing to Hebrew believers, Hebrew people who have heard that the angels are most powerful, the prophets are powerful, Abraham is great, Moses is great, and the, the very beginning of the book he's saying Jesus is greater than all these. And so when he does that, he's quoting in Hebrews 1, he's quoting several psalms that he's going to make comment to and reference to. And when he quotes them, it's interesting in context. In verse 8 of chapter 1, But unto the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. If you go back to Psalm 45, what he's doing is it's God the Father speaking about the Messiah. And so he's quoting a messianic psalm, and he's saying that God called the Messiah... God. He's talking to him, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He quotes another text here. He quotes Psalm 110. In verse 10, he's quoting, he says, thou, Lord, this is God speaking in Psalm 110 to the Messiah. Thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. And so then he talks about that the heavens will perish, they won't remain, but you, uh, they will all wax away as a vesture, clothing, mountains, everything rots away. But you are the same and your years will not stop. The Father is talking to the Son, calls him Lord or Adonai, a term for, for God in the Old Testament, and it says you're eternal. You're better than the mountains. You're better than clothing. You're better than anything else. You're going to last forever and ever and ever. And so the Father is making sure that we understand that Jesus is the creator and the one speaking. It's interesting to go back to Psalm 110 looking in the context. The one verse he's quoting uses Adonai, but in all the other verses around it, the Lord is all capital letters. It's Jehovah. Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. And Adonai will say this. So in context, the Lord is Jehovah speaking and calling the Son Lord. Okay, Adonai as well. John the Baptist, did he refer to Jesus as God? Absolutely. By the way, who sent John the Baptist? 
Who sent him? God did. God did. He was a man sent from God, John chapter 1. When John comes, what, he has a mission. What's his mission? Okay, prepare the way in the wilderness to be the messenger. It's interesting when you quote that idea and go back and look at exactly what it says about him being the messenger before Jesus. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of Yahweh, Jehovah. Okay, he's sent to prepare the way of Jehovah, make straight a desert in the highway for our Elohim. What's Elohim? God. Okay, so he is given a mission to be the messenger before the one who is called Yahweh God. We go a little bit further. In Acts chapter 16, you may want to look this up. I'm going to ask you to fill in the blanks here. In Acts chapter 16, do you remember the account? They're sitting in jail. What happens? They're singing, praising God. Then what happens? There's an earthquake. All the prisoners are released. The jailer comes in thinking everybody's escaped. The jailer's going to do what? He's going to kill himself because prisoners escape means he's going to be executed. And what does Paul say? Yeah, we're still here. We haven't taken off. The jailer comes in, falls down before him and says, Good sirs, what must I do to... Okay, the question we wish everybody would come into our house and ask. Okay. And it's interesting, okay, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Okay. That's clear. We understand what he's doing. Then you go a little bit further. They spake unto him and the word of God and to all that were in his house. Then if you look at verse 34, it says that he put meat before them and they rejoiced, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what it says? No. What is, what's the blank? They believe in God. What has he just done? He's equated the Lord Jesus Christ with who? With God. With God. So he's made, him, made it very clear. The apostles said that there was no misunderstanding. They thought the Lord Jesus Christ, they knew, was the same as God. And so the Holy Spirit under inspiration just equated that. And you mentioned it, Don, I think you were the one that mentioned, even the enemies. Uh, and, and Bob, I should have added what you just added. You, you folk, write down, the enemies include, who did you say that recognized? The devils. The devils recognized that Jesus was, was the Son of God. Okay. So you believe, and I believe Jesus was fully God. But there's another aspect of Jesus that has to be believed because if we don't believe it, we don't have faith. We, our faith is, is blank. We not only need to believe that he is fully God, he was fully man, okay? And we all know that. We believe that. We understand that. But how do we give an answer to somebody who says, and by the way, this has been taught, this is a common teaching in Bible days, and even some groups today hold to it. Jesus really wasn't a man. He was an emanation. He, was a, he took the appearance of man, but he didn't really possess manhood. He just, do, you, do you remember accounts where angels showed up looking like people? Do you remember any instances? Okay, Abraham... Lot, okay. There, there are those in Christianity, quote-unquote, that claim that's what Jesus did. He just showed up. He, he just took on you know, the image, and it wasn't a real, real human. It was just kind of an appearance short-term, or it was just a 
a holographic form. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. That he came and it was just, he really wasn't body and flesh. How do you respond to that? Besides saying, that's stupid. Okay. How do you respond biblically to say, I know he was in the flesh? Okay, let's start over here. Marilyn? He was birthed. Yeah. Yeah, he, there's accounts that he, he was born as a child. Let's continue it. He grew. Did he have to learn as a child? Okay. Did he, did he have to go through growing pains? Yeah, he had human body. Okay. He had to obey his parents. What's that? He grew in wisdom and stature and favor with man and with God. So he had to learn social skills. He had to grow, learn at school. What's the conundrum for us? He's God, he knows everything, but he had to learn. Is that a conundrum? How do we explain it? Oh, Joyce, I'm so glad you said it the wrong way. Okay. <laughs> you did say it. You didn't mean it. The, I hope you didn't mean it the way you said it. Okay. He, she said, and this is very important, okay? So I want to pick on you for just a second. I'm so glad you did it. She said he laid aside his deity. Did he lay aside his deity? Did he unbecome God? No. He laid aside his abilities and freedoms of his deity. Okay. He was still always God. But he laid aside using the attributes at times and living like a human. I can't explain it any further than that. To, to, it's, it's, how do I explain the Trinity? I know it's there. I can't go any further. How do I explain God loves us? He does. I don't know why. Okay. So there's things that are beyond. But this is so important that, that we understand he's fully man. And you've covered a lot of it already. So if you're in that discussion, and you will be, because this is a growing theological movement now that Jesus wasn't really a man. You know how everything repeats itself in time? There's nothing new under the sun. This was real popular in early Christianity. It became real popular again right around the Reformation. It is again rearing its ugly head that Jesus wasn't fully man. He came and just... He kind of looked like a man, but he wasn't a real man. Go ahead. Oh, he was tempted in every point like we are. Anything else that tells you he was man? He, he bled. He ate. Okay. He had the sorrowings like a person. What were you going to say? He was tired. He slept. Just like, just like we get right around 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Okay. Right. What's that? He died. He died. God doesn't die. What portion of Jesus died? Okay. So this is really important. And we, we just breeze through. We know that he's 100% man because he had a body. He was made of the flesh. Every spirit that confesses he is. This, this, this is really important. How John understood this doctrine. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come, has come in the flesh is of God. Do you remember in the next phrase? Every spirit that confesses Jesus is not, okay, watch, confesses that Jesus, uh, confesses not that Jesus has come in the flesh, he's a what? And an antichrist. This is an important doctrine. 
Very important doctrine. Okay? Um, and so we believe that because he had the body, he had a birth mother. How does the spirit have a mother? Okay? She wraps him in swaddling clothes. He was made of a woman. He increased, as you already said. He grew from a babe to a child to an adult. He had to learn like we have to learn. He talks about how they poured ointment not on my holographic toe. They, they poured it on my body. You mentioned already the responses. He was tired. He was weary. He slept. He had thirst. He had hunger. He was weak. He was troubled. He ate. He drank. He sweated drops of blood. Okay, we, we go a little bit further. We say, okay, he was beaten physically. He was scourged. He was whipped. I don't think those soldiers were going, whoa, what happened? You know, put our hand right through him. No way. Their whip, their whip brought him close to death. He was nailed to a cross. He bled. His side was pierced. He was buried. He resurrected. All of this says that Jesus Christ was unrespent God, unrespent man. Now, just, just to keep the ball rolling for a second, okay, here's an important question that goes with this. Why is it so important that we understand and believe that he had a body, a human body? Okay? Okay. Here, l- let me just point out something here. He was more than God possessing a body. This is different than, this isn't like a demon possession. A demon possession, they would usually come and they would possess not their own body, somebody, something or somebody else's, right? This was more than a divine possession. Okay? Jesus became fully man. Okay, and that thought, that's very important. Remember, we were in this just a few weeks ago in Philippians 2. Where in Philippians 2, he uses the two words, the morphe and the schemata. Okay, that they have, they're similar, but they're different. The morphe is your nature, how you are. Your schemata is this. Which one changes a lot? This one. For lots of us, it gets thinner in time. The eyes get better. The hair gets fuller, okay? And most of us are saying, no, that's not the way it works. Our schemata gets worse. We feel the aches and pains. But the morphe, we're still the morphe. In fact, most of us who are old fogies anymore, how old do we think we really are? Yeah, we don't think we're as old as our schemata, right? Is that true? Okay, so some of you are going, What? Okay, okay. When, we, when I go to a mirror at time, it's like, I don't really don't look like that. I look like I did when I was half this age. That's, that's my morphe. My schemata is what's staring back at me in the mirror. Okay? And so in that, with that in mind, just to remind you how the apostle under the inspiration of Scripture was so careful with words he chose. To make sure we understood. Jesus was in the nature of God, the passage talks about. He took the nature, the attitude, the, the character of a servant, of a doulos. He, goes, he was made in the, by the way, homo oitai. Homo is man. And I understand that the word has been distorted. But in the original language, homo is man. He took the likeness, the flesh of a man, complete human physical 
You know, and in fact, he goes a little bit further and he says he took on not only the morphe of a servant man, but he took the schemata. He was complete human. Not just an appearance or an apparition. He was, and he wasn't borrowing somebody else's body. This was his. By the way, he got the body when he was conceived. Does he still occupy that body? Is it still his body? Yeah, where's it at now? Okay, important doctrine. Here we go. Okay, he still has that same body. Why is it so important that we're stressing this? That he has, that he was totally man. Several, several of you have already mentioned it, okay? Um, he has to be totally man because, what did you say over in here? Okay. Okay, let's start with that one. Since you, I'll get to what they just said, but I know the order here. The, one of the reasons that this had to happen is it had to fulfill prophecy. If he didn't come in a body, then, then we have errors in the Bible. So he had to come to fulfill prophecies, which started all the way back in Genesis, In Genesis, it talked about that there was going to be somebody who was going to be the seed of the woman. This this is the proto-euangelion, the very first gospel mentioned in Scripture, that somebody would come, born of of humankind, would come and they would defeat Satan and overcome the sin penalty. And so that started all the way back in Genesis. Uh, Abraham is told... Do you remember this passage in, in, uh, in, Genesis, on, yeah, in Genesis 12? Uh, I will bless them that, that bless thee, and I will curse them that... Okay, this is when that's happening. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And he's talking, obviously, about his, his Messiah descendant. Um, David's told that there's going to be coming one who will be his descendant. And we read in Isaiah already, there's going to be a child that shall be born. And Jesus ends up basically saying, I've come to fulfill prophecy. Not to eliminate it, but I've come, come to fulfill Scripture. So number one, the reason we understand and believe and hold to 100% God, 100% in the flesh. But in this topic in particular, Scripture's predicted it. Number two reason, in order to be our kinsman, what's a kinsman and redeemer? I'm using a term that some may not be familiar with. Okay. If you, if you had a kinsman and redeemer back in Bible times, what was the requirement for that person to be able to help you? It's in the title. They had to be related to you. They had to be blood related to you. And then if you were in grave trouble, they could, if your if you're lands, okay, Lloyd, let's, let's pick on you since you brought this up, okay, you started. If, you're, if your property is going to be confiscated because of debts, if your brother was still alive, he could come in and pay your debts and restore the land to you as a kinsman redeemer. Um, and so the, a relative coming to your rescue is the idea. And so we have in the New Testament very clearly a first Adam and a last Adam or a second Adam. We have this terminology about somebody related to mankind that Jesus in mankind, uh, in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, the first Adam, the last Adam. Uh, it's interesting the word he uses. Um, 
where he uses the first Adam was made a living soul. And if you want to mark this, this is an important interpretation that we kind of miss in the English. That in that passage, Adam was made a living soul, literally living being, but the last Adam was made a quickening, a life-giving is the word. Giving life, not just having life, but he very clearly says that the second Adam is one who will give life. Very, very important. Okay, The first Adam is of the earth, of dust, the second man, Adam, is from the, the heaven. There's a third reason, okay? He had to physically die for our, to pay for our sins. There had to be a physical payment for our sins, okay? We've got all these scriptures. For the, even for the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The wages of sin is death, okay? Christ also has once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. Very clearly, he had to die in order for us to have forgiveness of sins. You know that you were not redeemed with silver or gold, but with the blood of Christ. And I know in modern, in modern churches, do they want to talk about the shed blood of Christ anymore? No, they want to minimize that. His blood, his life had to be given. His blood had to be shed because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That is forgiveness of sin. So he had to be like by his own blood, he entered into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. There's a fourth reason. Okay, to be the, the sufficient mediator. He had to understand God he had to understand man. And to go in between us, he had to, he's the one. The man, Christ Jesus. The human, Christ Jesus. There's a fifth reason. To be fully sympathetic to us. To really minister to us after salvation. He had to understand. Uh, in fact, you brought up, he was tempted in all points like... Do you remember that? He was tempted in all points like... As we are. Okay, that passage is trying to help us to understand what? It's, it's talking about coming to the Lord when you have a need. What's that? He understands. He understands what we're going through. A fully sympathetic high priest. Um, okay, some of you have had this happen. Some of you have lost an immediate family member. Okay, when that happens, Wendy, can I pick? Can I ask you for a question? Did certain people, when when they came, it it meant a lot because they had similar experiences. I think you recall there was that lady, a friend of yours from out of state, who contacted, and she had the same thing, lost her son, mm-hmm. and you commented how that meant so much yeah. because she understood. she understood what you were going through. She knew what you were experiencing, right? I think I had the story right. Yes, okay. Um, have, have any of you experienced something like that? Where if you faced, you faced cancer, the person who's gone through it and you talk with them, okay? So that's what we're talking about here is Jesus understands, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, in other words, he can, but was in all points tempted like, we, like as we are, yet without sin. Uh, what's the word sucker mean? 
Yeah. Run to the cry. Run to the cry, literally. What's the picture of? Do you remember we talked about this just... I shouldn't ask you this because we just did it three weeks ago and it's, it, then I get myself all disappointed. Okay. It, it's what? Oh, I owe you a lunch. Okay. Yeah, it's the idea of a parent running where a, cry, a child is crying. Okay, so to run to the cry. Jesus is able to run to our cry because he understands what we've been through. To provide a good example. Okay. Is it okay for us to say biblically Jesus came to be an example? Yeah, okay, there's the key. Some people will stop and say, Jesus was a good example. That's not good enough. Okay, there was much more to it. But is it true he came to be an example? Yes. In fact, we just heard that preached by Pastor Art that talking in that 1 Peter chapter 2 passage, verses 20 through 22, where it's talking about that he left us an example how to respond to trials. Uh, let's, before I go any further, what example does he leave us that we find helpful or challenging? Example in what areas? Go ahead. Okay, how, how, you want to expand upon just not his suffering? Okay. Okay. Okay, excellent, excellent. Uh, that, and that text uh, that I just referred to talks about both of those. Jesus is an example of how to handle sufferings and how to respond to people who are bringing the sufferings. Does he give us an example of anything else that, that in our life that he says, do as I have done? Excellent. Excellent. An example of servanthood. Somebody over here. Okay. Very good. Anything else that he's given us an example? Uh, prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Okay. Anything else that he's given us an example? As I have loved you. Even so. so we have all these things. Um, and I, I start off when you didn't even mention. How to resist temptation. Does he provide us a good example of how to do that? Oh, yeah. What did he do? He quoted scripture. Anything else that he did? He was involved in praying before the temptation came. Okay. Anything else that he did in the temptation that is good for us? Okay. He used the scripture. He had it in his heart. So I put down, uh, he tempted all points. How did he resist? He used the word of God. He used prayer. He was being led by the Spirit, okay, which Paul uses all these in Ephesians. And, and then, um, maybe I'm oversimplifying it. What did he say to Satan, basically? Just say no. Just say no. He did it. He just said no to resist the temptation. Okay, let's do one that you mentioned. How to love people. A new commandment that you love as I have loved you. Uh, that you love one another as I have loved you. And in fact, what relationship more than any other does he say, this is how you're to love in, in a relationship that you will experience? Do you know which one I'm referring to? Husbands, love your wives as... Christ loved the church. Okay. So let's pick one more that you said. How to respond in trials. We had that mentioned. So he gives us all these good examples. And how to obey and serve God. 
I should add to the one that, that you had said, I don't think I have up here, how to minister to people in washing the feet. But he came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me, my meat, my joy, my strength, to do the will of God, not my will, but thine be done. Though, and here's an interesting phrase. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience. Did Jesus have to learn? Yeah. Okay. By the things that he suffered, he had to learn to do what? The human aspect of just God, your will, not my own. That leads me to a question. Okay. And let's wrap up with this. Could Jesus have sinned? He's 100% God. He's 100% man. Could he have sinned? Okay, when people say no, he could not have sinned, then the retort to that is, then what good was the temptation? The temptation meant nothing. But then those who say, you know, he chose not to sin, well, what about his holiness and his deity? There, in theology, it's called two things. It's called this, the peccability or the impeccability of Jesus Christ. And theologians, good theologians, okay, have argued over this, was he able not to sin or was he not able to sin? And so the idea comes basically, it's, it's which, which part are you stressing? His humanity, his deity, and this is where idiots like me come to this type of a discussion. I conclude this, he didn't sin, that's what I know. He didn't sin. Okay, I, I just I know he didn't sin. Okay, could he have or could he not have? I don't know, but I know the fact is he didn't, and that's what makes him so special. He just didn't. So, with that in mind, let's get ready for worshiping him. Okay?